I know most of you have probably known people that have at one time or another been involved in some sort of a restoration program. Maybe you've known someone who restored an old car. And the idea of that, of course, is to take an old car, uh, maybe 60, 70 years old, and try to put it back into its original condition, make it just like it was when it was new. That's a hard job, and the people who do it are really talented. Other people have made effort to restore old houses, maybe put them back in their splendor of newness, When maybe take a, a house a 100 years old or older and try to put it back into that vintage era when it was first made, to restore that house. Other people have restored antiques of various kinds. In fact, there are a number of shows on TV where people are involved in restorations of different things. Some of you may know that I've undertaken a project to try and restore an old camper. And I'm telling you, it's quite a job. There's a lot involved. It's a lot of work. And sometimes I wonder if I've made a good choice to begin that endeavor. Restoring something old back to the way it was is a real challenge. But the idea is that there's, there's something there of value. It's a valuable thing. It needs to be put back in its original condition. Now, if you think about that, maybe think about restoring an old car. Maybe you're going to take an old Model T Ford, and you're going to restore an old Model T Ford back to its original condition. That's neat. And the people who do that really do some really fine work. And it, it, it really is something to see a car that old put back in its original condition. Uh, but when you think about that, that car, although restored to its original condition, and it's nice to do that restoration, that old car is not like a new car. New cars are still a lot better. No, I wouldn't want to drive a Model T all the time every place I wanted to go. I want a modern car. I want a car with all the upgrades that have occurred since cars were originally invented. You know, I want all those nice things. I want that more luxurious ride. I want more power. I want air conditioning in the hot summertime and heat in the cold wintertime. I want cruise control and a radio that plays and all that sort of thing too, right? So although we see a value in restoring an old car, we think new is better. New, There's lots of improvements with newer things. All right, this morning we want to talk about restoration, but we want to talk about it not in terms of cars or houses or antiques. Rather, we want to talk about the restoration plea, a plea to take the church back to its original state, to put the church back in regards to how it's organized and how it does its work and how the worship is conducted, to put the church back all the way back to the beginning, like the church was when it first began, when we read about it in the pages of the New Testament. Now here, there's something a little different. Remember we said with, a, with an old car, you could restore it, but new cars are better. We understand that. New, old cars are neat, but new cars are better. Here, though, it's not the case. It's not the case that new religion is better than the old. In this case, we need to restore that original church. We need to be doing things just like they did in the pages of the New Testament because that was perfect. No improvement, no, perfect, no perfecting of that could ever be achieved because it was perfect at its start. And so when we talk about restoring the church and the plea to get back to the way it was at its beginning, here we're talking about restoring something that was perfect ideal initially, and that could not be improved upon, we want to talk about that plea to restore the New Testament church this morning. Thanks for being here on this beautiful Lord's Day. We're glad that you've come. We appreciate your 
diligence and your concern and your interest in spiritual things. We're glad that you're here. We're thankful for our visitors this morning. We hope you'll come back every time you have a chance to be here. We hope that all of us will be able to say when we're done that it was good for us to be gathered together this morning. Let's talk about the restoration plea. You may have heard the restoration plea sort of expressed in this manner. Let us speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. Let us call Bible things by Bible names and do Bible things in Bible ways. Let us restore the church as it was in the days of the apostles. That is sort of, uh, in a nutshell, what this restoration plea is. Now, I don't know that there was any specific individual who ever stated it in those exact words, at least never used all of those same words in that exact fashion. But that is the concept of the restoration plea. There was a fellow who said some of that almost verbatim, and his name was Thomas Campbell. You may have heard of the name Thomas Campbell. Uh, Thomas Campbell was born in Ireland in the 1700s, and he came to America in the early 1800s. He was trained as a Presbyterian minister, but he began to see the flaws in some of that and began to think differently. He was the father, by the way, of a man you probably heard more of, Thomas Campbell was the father of Alexander Campbell. But Thomas Campbell preached a sermon in that era, early 1800s, in which he said, where the scriptures speak, we speak, and where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. So you see the sort of the nucleus of that restoration plea. Thomas Campbell was the one who said it that way. After he had preached that sermon, one of the men who was in attendance and heard him preach that day said, Mr. Campbell, if we adopt that as a basis, then there is an end of infant baptism. And so one of the people who heard Campbell preach objected to it. If we do what you just said, speak where the Scriptures speak and be silent where the Scriptures are if we do that, then we won't be able to practice infant baptism. You know how Campbell responded? That course, infant baptism in the Presbyterian church and all of that. That was, a, that was a devoted thing. That's what they liked. That's what they practiced. He said, of course. If infant baptism be not found in the Scripture, we can have nothing to do with it. That was his mindset. That was a worthy mindset. That was the right way to look at it. Don't you agree? Even if it means, if going back to the original means we've got to give up some of the things that we've been doing and that we've been fond of doing, of course we'll give those things up. If we can't read about it in the Scripture, we'll give that up. That was the mindset of men like Thomas Campbell. Thomas Campbell wasn't the only one. But he had that mindset that we're trying to describe this morning in our lesson. The idea of restoring the church to its original state. Thomas Campbell was probably better known for a document he wrote called Declaration and Address in 1809. Uh, it, this Declaration and Address, I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but this document that he penned was considered to sort of be the basis of the restoration movement here in America. And in that declaration and address, Campbell said, we ought to practice simple, original, the simple original form of Christianity, expressly exhibited upon the sacred page, without attempting to inculcate or include or incorporate anything of human authority, of private opinion, or inventions of men, as having any place in the Constitution, faith, or worship of the Christian church, or anything as a matter of Christian faith or duty, which, uh, for which there cannot be expressly produced a thus saith the Lord, either in express terms or by approved precedent. You see it? You see what he's calling for? Let's go back to the beginning. Let's not incorporate anything that men have added by way of their own opinions or inventions. 
He went further to say, No human authority has power to interfere by making laws for the church, nor can any more be required of Christians in such cases, but only that they observe these commands and ordinances. Much less has any human authority power to impose new commands or ordinances upon the church, which our Lord Jesus Christ has not enjoined. Nothing ought to be received into the faith or worship of the church that is not as old as the New Testament. Well, uh, you may have never heard of the Declaration and Address. You might never have heard of Thomas Campbell. But that approach to things uh, in religion continues to prevail today. That's the attitude. Those are the concepts. That's the basis upon which we practice our religion here uh, in the Lord's Church. Uh, we don't do it for any reason other than that is the approach enjoined upon us by Scripture, as we're going to see in a minute. We don't follow this way of thinking because we think Thomas, that we hold Thomas Campbell in, in some kind of reverent position, or his son Alexander Campbell, for that matter, or for a number of other famous preachers of that era. We're saying they had a right idea. They may not even have had that idea in its complete and perfect form, but they had a right idea, and we're trying to pursue the concept taught here. Speak where the Bible speaks. Be silent where the Bible is silent. Do nothing except that for which we have Bible authority. Over a hundred years later, there was another well-known preacher right here in our immediate area, N.B. Hardiman. N.B. Hardiman uh, preached a series of five lectures at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee, beginning in 1922. Over 20 years, he preached five times there at the Ryman. Uh, those meetings were... Uh, attended by thousands of people. On the order of about 8,000 people attended each of them, and thousands of others were turned away because there was no room in the Ryman. The Nashville Tennessean and the Nashville Banner carried big stories about Hardeman's Tabernacle Sermons that he preached at the Ryman Auditorium. Uh, those have been published. You may even have a copy of them in your library. Hardeman uh, later became president of what's known today as Freed Hardeman College in Henderson, Tennessee, just south of Jackson, Tennessee. You no doubt have heard of N.B. Hardeman. Hardeman had this same restoration concept in mind. Notice what he said at the Ryman in Nashville in the, Hard in the uh, Tabernacle Sermons. He said, I would God tonight that all professed followers in the city of Nashville, Tennessee and elsewhere would be content to have but the Bible as their creed, their discipline, their church manual, their church directory, their rule of faith and practice throughout life. And he went on to say, I pledge my word and promise myself tonight, if the man will thus show me that God's book does not plainly demand it, I will gladly surrender and give it up. Take your stand on God's book, eliminate all things that are not plainly taught therein, and when you do so, I will gladly come to you and take my stand with you. Well, again, we believe this. In fact, we serve this way, don't we? Uh, we preach and promote the concept that Hardeman was preaching there. And it's not by loyalty to N.B. Hardeman or Thomas Campbell or Alexander Campbell or any other man. We do this. We approach our religious service this way because we believe that that's what's taught in God's holy scriptures. And that's what we want to try to illustrate as we go further in our study this morning. We want to discuss that restoration plea as we've tried to describe it, as we've tried to lay some of the historical 
foundations upon which it stands. We want to talk about the restoration plea this morning. Uh, we're 200 years removed from those who first started to think that way and to work in that direction. We keep trying to do uh, what they were trying to do. We try to restore. Because as we said earlier, when you restore something, you understand the value of it. You see that it's right. And in regards to the Lord's church, we see that it was perfect at its instance, at its beginning. And we want to be just like they were. What are some of the implications of the restoration plea? You get the idea of implication. If something is to be restored, it implies certain things must be true. For instance, if you say the church needs to be restored, then what that implies is that God had an original plan for the church. Think again about the idea of restoring an old car. So you take this old Model T and you it's in pretty bad shape and maybe it's been sitting in a barn for the last 50 years and it's got two or three inches of dust on it and, and it's broken down and it's in bad shape, but you think you can put it back original. So you start dismantling that thing. That's what you've got to do. You've got to take it apart and put it back together. And as you're taking it apart, you find some parts that you don't recognize. What was that? What did they have that there for? But, you, but what you don't do is say, well, here's a part that has no purpose at all. Throw it away. You don't do that when you're restoring this old Model T. You say, that part was there for a reason. Whoever designed this car initially had a purpose for putting it there. I need to understand what that purpose was. I need to get this thing fixed so it works like it did originally. The designer had an idea in mind, right? That's the way you approach restoration. And that's the way that we ought to approach our religion. The designer, God, had a purpose. Uh, he always has had purpose in the things that he d did and the things that he has taught us to do. If we went all the way back in the Old Testament to the man Noah, the very famous episode of Noah and the Flood, in Genesis chapter 6, when God instructed Noah to build the ark, he said, This is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof with lower, second, and third stories that thou shalt make it. Now you know those specifics, and we've talked about them before, how large a vessel that was and so forth. But what do you think about changing that plan? What if Noah had said, well, I don't like the dimensions of that thing. I'm going to make it a little shorter and a little wider. Uh, I, I just don't like the idea of three stories. I'll make four or five. What, would you have advised Noah to change the plan for the ark? I think everybody would be quick to say, oh, absolutely not. No, build it just like God said. God had a purpose in mind. He had a plan that he wanted to be fulfilled in that ark. Build it just like he said. Everybody would say that. Well, if that applied to Noah, why wouldn't that apply to us when it comes to us building the church? Shouldn't it be built just like God said? Or what if we talked about Moses? In Exodus chapter 25, Moses was given instructions about building the tabernacle. He said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Exodus 25, beginning verse 8. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shalt thou make it. God said to Moses, I'm showing you how I want it. I'm giving you the pattern here. Do it like I said. 
When the Hebrew writer quoted this episode, he stated it in even more emphatic terms. Moses, this is Hebrews 8 verse 5, Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle for, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. That even sounds more stern, doesn't it? God told Moses, you do it just like I said. Would anybody have been so presumptuous to tell Moses, Moses, you don't have to do it just like that. Moses, you can change this or that. Moses, fix it the way you want it. No one would have said that. Uh, we would all tell Moses, just like the Hebrew writer, recorded, or Hebrew writer recorded this, you be sure and do it just like you were told, right? Because God had a plan. He had a design. He had a purpose. It should be done His way. In the text that Mark read for us earlier from Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, Isaiah was prophesying about the coming of the kingdom, about the establishment of the church. Isaiah, remember, lived 700 years before Christ, but he foresaw his day. And he saw the establishment of the church. He said, It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall come, or shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Notice this. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Do you see that? Isaiah was describing the church. And he talked about how it would be in the church because it's the way God wanted it. He would teach us his ways. We would walk in his paths. Would it be a good plan? This, this plan of God that Isaiah was describing, would it be a good plan? Of course. It originated with God. Should it be followed exactly this, this church that Isaiah was describing, should the plan for that church be followed exactly? Of course. Could it be improved upon? After God had instructed how it should be done, could that be improved upon? No way, right? We understand that. Notice what Jesus Christ Himself said in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, beginning verse 18. Jesus came near and, Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing in the name and the, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Notice, this, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. I want us to really emphasize there the all things, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Jesus didn't say when he commissioned his apostles to go forth and preach the gospel. He didn't say go and teach them that they should observe some of the things that I have taught you. He didn't say, go and let them observe the parts that suit them, the parts that they like, but allow them to change anything else that doesn't go along with their think-sos. He didn't say that. He said, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded thee. And when that church then did begin, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. Was it the right idea back then to do just as the Lord instructed? I hope we would all agree absolutely it was right to do just what the planner planned, just what the designer designed, just what God instructed. If it was right for them, is it not right for us to do the same? And if not, then we would simply ask the question, why not? Why wouldn't it be, if it was right for them, why wouldn't that approach be right for us? So when we talk about restoring the church, we talk about the restoration plea, we see that God had a plan for the church. 
And we furthermore see that God expected Christians to follow that plan. This really should go without saying that if the designer has a plan, we ought to do what he planned. What if you contracted with a, a builder to build you a house and you gave him a set of building plans? You want a house built like this. Uh, and then, you know, you, you're not there to watch what he's doing and when you come back to investigate, he's dramatically changed the house. The house is not the same size or shape. It's completely different in the layout. Everything about it is different than the plan you gave the, to the builder. Would you be pleased with that? Absolutely not. You're not. When you gave him the plan, you wanted him to follow it. The same is true with God. Why would it be any different with God? He had a plan for the church. Clearly, he would expect us to follow that plan. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Do you see sort of just the constant rolling forward of this? I gave it to you, you give it to others. Keep passing this along to faithful men and they'll keep teaching others too to do it this way. Keep following that same pattern. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning verse 13, he even used the word pattern. 2 Timothy 1.13, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. There was a pattern. God has always been a God of patterns. He wanted us to follow the pattern. Paul warned in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us ye might learn not to go beyond the things which are written, that no one of you be puffed up for the one against the other. Paul straightly warns, don't do that. Don't go beyond what is written. And finally, 2 John beginning verse 9 leaves no doubt about how important this is. Second John, verse 9, beginning, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive, you not, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deed. It's so important. God had a plan. And clearly God expects Christians to follow that plan. But we're talking about restoring this morning, restoring that first century church. And what's implied when we talk about the need to restore the church is that men departed from that pattern. And therefore, there was a need for the church to be restored. Restoration was needed because of a departure. In our class this morning, we talked some about some of those kind of departures, maybe even the classic example of departure being the Catholic Church, how it evolved over several centuries till sometime shortly after 600 A.D. The Catholic Church named the first pope. That Catholic Church, and of course most denominations of men, have this huge hierarchy of church government that can't be read about in the Bible. All sorts of changes have been brought into the work and worship of churches. The fact of the matter is now that when you compare most modern denominations to what you read about in your Bible, there's effectively uh, no comparison at all to the original plan. And it was for that reason that men like Thomas Campbell uh, that we read about earlier and some others, it was for that reason that those fellows said, we need a restoration. We need to get back to what it was like originally. We agree with that mindset. 
And we still pursue that same endeavor to restore it like it was originally. Again, not out of loyalty to those men, but out of devotion to God Himself who had the plan, who expected men to follow that plan. Let me give you an example of the erroneous kind of thought process that has been so evident all through history, really. This is a more recent quote by a man named Hiscox in the Standard Manual for Baptist Churches. He said, note this. Now, notice the way he's thinking here. This is wrong thinking. We illustrated earlier the right thinking of Thomas Campbell and Indy Hardeman and others. But here's an example of the more prevalent kind of false thinking that goes on in religion. This man, Hiscox, said, it was most likely that in the apostolic age when there was but one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and no differing denominations existed, the baptism of a convert by that very act constituted him a member of the church and at once endowed him with all the rights and privileges of full membership. In that sense, baptism was the door into the church. Now it is different. Now it's different. He said, notice, he's contrasting how it was back in the apostolic age. He mentions that. In the apostolic age, it was one way, but now it is different. Now, you, we can talk about what's in between those two statements. But what's interesting to me is that here's a, here's a religious leader who says, I acknowledge it was one way back then, but it's different now. How so? How could that be so? Uh, why would it be different now? And how could it be right for it to be different now. In Acts chapter 20, you remember the Apostle Paul speaking to the elders at Ephesus actually foretold this sort of a departure. He said, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with prayers. It was an obvious huge concern to Paul that there would be this departure from the faith. And notice he said he was in tears as he thought about what was going to happen. Men ceased to follow God's pattern. And for that reason, then a restoration was needed. We needed to get back to that. And that's uh, our job. That's what we continue to try to do today. It's our constant duty to maintain God's uh, pattern. As we've said in our lesson this morning, we're thankful for the restorers, for Campbell and others like him in that same era who were wise enough to understand that when God says something, He means it and it ought to be done that way. So they had the right idea. They weren't perfect in the implementation of it. We're not saying we're perfect in the implementation of it either, for that matter. But that's our objective. That should be our constant goal. Pursue that simple, pure, New Testament form of Christianity. Peter warned that it would be under threat. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning verse 1, There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. When he said there were false prophets among the people and there shall be false teachers among you, do you think that still applies to us today? It does, doesn't it? We've got to be on guard against false teachers. The, the awful result of their work is the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Many will follow their pernicious ways. We've got to be on guard against those who are not willing to follow the simple pattern set forth in the Word of God.
Uh, our goal must be, as Jeremiah expressed in Jeremiah 6, verse 16, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. We need to ask for the old paths. Uh, we need to follow the pattern that God set for His church. Restoration. Put it back like it was originally. Uh, we typically regard that as a good thing, to restore old things. As we said earlier, very often in restoring old things, we're restoring something that's not as good as new versions of it. Restore an old car, that's great, but new cars are better. Nobody would argue that. But in the case of restoring the church, we're saying it was perfect initially, and no improvement upon it could be made. We need to get back to that. That's what we're trying to do. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. We're going to sing a song of invitation as we bring the lesson to a close. And in singing this song, we'll ask everyone to think of your relationship with God and make sure it's right. If you need to obey that gospel plan of salvation taught in the New Testament, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, we hope you'll make that decision. We'd be glad to study with you more so you can make that decision in an informed way. If you need that, let us know how we can help. If you're a Christian already, but you've not been faithful to the Lord, we beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.